Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union Podcast. Designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation with special guest John Earls talking about organising along supply chains Mel Sims thought for the week and Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup Welcome, welcome to the new series of Union Jews. It's great to be back with you. We've missed you. We've really missed you and I hope you've missed us a little bit as well. I'm Simon Sapper and this is the UK's only all things union show. We've got a fabulous episode coming up. Our featured guest this time round is Unite's Director of Research, John Earls, where we're chatting about a new report on organising along supply chains, the challenge posed by Freeport's and the importance of good, solid research. We also welcome back Glasgow University's Professor of Work and Employment, Mel Sims. Her thought for the week this week looks at the relative positions of older and younger workers, more in common than perhaps you might think. And Josiah Mortimer, of course, is here with us with his Radical Roundup. All the union stories you just might not see in the mainstream media. Let's kick off with Mel Sims and Thought for the Week. When you look at the working population of this country by age, those at either end of the scale, say 18 to 24 year olds or 60 year old plus, are often regarded as having little in common. But is that true? Mel reflects on the intergenerational links and communities of interests and what that might mean for policymakers. I started this week running a special stream at an online academic conference and while I was sad not to have the chance to hang out with my friends and colleagues talking about labour process and all things employment relations, it was really great to have the opportunity to step back from the day-to-day management of lockdown and crisis to talk about research. What our stream did was look at the experiences of older and younger workers, and there's nothing especially new there. But what was interesting is it was one of the first times we've ever brought together our knowledge and theorisation about the two groups into one stream. So my research on young workers and trade unions means I often spend time at conferences with people who have a related interest in youth, sociologists, labour market theorists, labour economists and so on. But I almost never hear about what's happening at the other end of the age continuum. And it really was eye opening. It was one of those moments where two groups of researchers who've been working away at various issues and challenges, but without previously speaking to each other, came together to start to understand how many similar issues are going on at the two ends of the age spectrum. In the final gathering, we had a chance for a more informal chat and we noted how many similarities there are facing older and younger workers. I think our public conversation has fallen into a tendency of wanting to blame the other cohort, so older citizens blaming younger ones and vice versa. 
Across this conference, we started to understand how profoundly precarity affects both groups. So one of the points that came out was how keeping hold of housing and pension wealth later in life, for example, is an entirely rational response to the collapse of the welfare state and a lack of confidence that there'll be mechanisms to support older adults into their retirement. We looked at how structures of precarity mean that the final years of engagement with the labour market are often marked by the same sorts of insecure work that we see young people struggling with. And we also saw how much intergenerational solidarity there actually is. So we talked about how transfers of housing and pension wealth can often support young people uh, to pay for education, property, and to establish their independent family life. And we discussed how much childcare support is provided by grandparents and other older adults to support young people in the labour market. We came away from the conference with a much stronger sense of how pervasive and problematic precarity is, both for older and for younger workers. But it also gave us hope that some of the informal and formal mechanisms of intergenerational solidarity building can provide the basis for different ways of thinking about those challenges and to move beyond that simple blame game. Thanks for that, Mel. And I do think that when you talk about not playing the blame game, you're absolutely right. It's entirely counterproductive. I think there are two issues that come out of out of that piece that that stick in my mind at least. The first is it's all very well talking about intergenerational transfers from older to younger. But what happens if or when the older generation have nothing to give? How does that impact upon the relationship between the two the two age groups and the two generations? That's a kind of uh, a bit of a hypothetical question, I suppose. It's certainly one that's more to do with perhaps anthropology or sociology than than industrial relations and trade and trade unions. The thing that second point though very much is to do with trade unions, and that, and that is actually if these two groups as workers have many common characteristics, especially about being in precarious employment, doesn't that suggest that a common approach in terms of recruiting and organising them might be worth considering? Mm, that's food for thought. Hope that makes you think anyway. Let us know what you think. You can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. We'd love to hear your views on that or anything for that matter. Now to our special guest, John Earls. John is Director of Research at Unite. And when you think about the immense range of industrial interests that union covers, the responsibility the role carries is both impressive and somewhat terrifying as well, I've got to say. But the union's breadth of membership does give a great strategic perspective on some key but potentially overlooked issues. And the report on organising along supply chains, written with the help of Andrew Waterman of Portsmouth University, is a prime example of this and a really valuable tool. But what does this all mean in practice? What is a supply chain? What does it mean to organise along the length of it? What are the difficulties in pursuing such a strategy? How can we avoid a free-falling race to the bottom when it comes to terms of employment? John and I also chat about heading up one of the leading if not the leading research department in UK unions. And it was good to hear the evident pride and appreciation for the work of his colleagues. Enough from me. Here's John. John Earls, Director of Research for Unite the Union. You're very, very welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. Thanks, Simon. It's good to be here. The starting point for our discussion today, uh, listeners, is a tremendous new document that uh, John has been responsible for in collaboration with his colleagues in the research department about 
trade as a collective bargaining issue. John, could we start by, by looking at why it's important to look at a union approach to trade and supply chains as opposed to a purely economic or political one? Well, I, I think trade too often has been uh, something that's been decided behind closed doors without the participation of workers and their representatives or, or, or proper scrutiny. And yet trade wouldn't exist without workers and can't be separated from its industrial impact. And the history of free-for-all trade uh, has been one of deregulation and division, driving trade unions often to the periphery of decision-making. And it's often gone hand-in-hand with employer strategies of breaking up production and and weakening the collective power of workers. And that's also often been associated with a a race to the bottom. And I, I think that trade just can't be left to trade experts and policy advisors and trade union representatives, as our workers started to demonstrate, are already reaching uh, for the fundamental principles of trade unionism to expose and, and counter some of these strategies. What we're trying to do is close that gap between trade as an abstract issue and its its real-world industrial impact and thinking of workplaces no longer in, in isolation but actually connected within uh, supply chains and trying to prevent what we've seen in terms of attempts to pit worker against worker and sector against sector and indeed region against region. And we're just trying to get that ability to shape and influence the working lives and experiences of people both at home uh, and abroad. Yeah, I suppose that, I mean, the, the issues that arise for, for trade unionists in all this, as you say, is a, a downward pressure on, on costs and therefore more exploitative behaviour by by employers, a kind of fragmentation of bargaining units, I suppose an attempt to um, evade responsibility or accountability by by putting things in areas of the world where there's low labour market re- regulation. Is it is it really as simple or as complicated as saying this is just bread and butter trade unionism, but played out on a global pan national stage? I, I think that distills it down quite nicely in terms of a. A core argument, but of course, when you try and implement that in practice and think about the various strands to that, then it needs to be uh, fleshed out in a little bit more detail. And actually, whilst it's really important to recognise and talk about the importance of taking a collective bargaining strategy to trade, you then have to start identifying what the elements of that particular strategy are. Yes, indeed. I mean, the the report listeners, I should say, is is peppered with quotes from Unite Activists um, in a variety of industrial circumstances. And and the message that comes through is, in many cases, we hadn't really thought about this before, but actually, yes, we get it. But we're not quite sure what to do about it or how to do about it. And in some cases, the sort of silo effect of splitting up a supply chain doesn't help. It doesn't. So what we've tried to recognise and put together is helping reps understand where they stand in a supply chain and then applying that very basic trade union principle of solidarity into what we've called supply chain solidarity, helping them to identify workers within given supply chains and where 
the points of strategic importance might be, what we've termed in the report choke points, and how they might use them uh, to influence uh, across the supply chain. Gosh, I mean, but that that's easy. Forgive me, I, I don't mean to be dismissive. But it's easy. It's easy to say, and I, I, I've got this visual, this this visual image of of what it might look like in a diagram, but in practice, it must be quite difficult for for your reps to kind of see out of the silo, as it were, especially if they're in some sort of free port where normality is suspended, and and to then look across not just geographical boundaries but but national boundaries as well. I mean, I suppose two questions. First of all, does the idea about supply chain solidarity come readily to to your reps on the ground? And secondly, what are the sort of tools and approaches that can be used to try and start making that happen? Uh, I think it's a concept that comes more readily to some sectors and some workers more so than others, but that's understandably the case. But certainly the concept of solidarity uh, doesn't come as anything new. And what we've tried to do in the report, as well as identify some of the theoretical and historical arguments around trade, is actually provide some very practical recommendations and indeed some tools to reps to assist them in that objective. So firstly, consultations. What can we do to help them access the industrial uh, information that they need, perhaps through their already existing collective bargaining agreements? Secondly, connections. Trying to understand where they and the workers they represent fit in a supply chain and identify those choke points that I was talking about earlier. Thirdly, coordination. So how do you develop that supply chain solidarity, not just across workplaces in the same sector, but between sectors? And finally, and I guess this touches on your last point, challenges. There are indeed some significant challenges to making this work. And I think we're quite honest in the report in highlighting what some of those are. What are the things that stand in the way uh, of fulfilling those objectives, be it resources, training, support, the potential for siloed working and perhaps not being able to make those connections in a way that we would always like? And sometimes that's to do with union structures how can they be looked at and adapted and we very much sort of say that some of the forums for which this will take place is not a one-size-fits-all but looking at how existing structures can support where they can and where they can't what else needs to be put in place to meet that supply chain solidarity objective Indeed, I mean, one of your reps from um, the automotive sector in London, the London and Eastern re- region was kind of bemoaning good naturedly the fact that that there's no coordinating machinery. I think the, the, the quote is, it's absolutely mad that we don't have a mechanism for, for doing this, which is which just shows that, you know, there's a willingness, but there are still real organisational challenges to, to overcome. I mean, I suppose a lot of the, the bit about consultation and getting information out from 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 employers I mean, that's, that's stuff that, that the employers will have, won't they? Because it, the, the level of contingency planning across supply chains that, that was part and part of the whole Brexit debate means it's a question of, of, of just kind of prizing it loose from, from the, 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 you know, the jealous clutches of employers who don't want to share any information about, uh, about this at all. But actually, 
in a funny sort of way, has COVID helped in that process? Has COVID made, meant the grip well, to be loosened? Well, you're right that much of this information employers have, and indeed trade unions and their representatives have a right to access to some of that uh, information where they have a collective bargaining agreement. But look, on COVID, you know, this was uh, clearly uh, a disruptive event. And it's very, very uh, instructive to see what happened over the past year. And we did take the opportunity when we were interviewing our reps to ask them about their, their COVID experiences. You know, and on a positive note, 80% of them said that their employer had initially acted responsibly during the pandemic. And that's undoubtedly in part due to the role that Unite reps, particularly Unite Health and Safety reps, played in assisting employers address a crisis. It's also in part due to our organising strength in some of those sites where we were conducting interviews with reps. We had quite high union density, and I think uh, there's an issue there around the environment in which trade unions operate. But I guess there's also a note of caution here because 20% said that their employers had done the bare minimum. And we Mm. conducted the interviews over a period of months. And it was interesting that actually in the second phase, uh, which was conducted a bit later towards the year, we certainly seen more incidences of reps telling us that their employers were behaving in an opportunistic manner and perhaps using COVID as cover to implement some things that perhaps they were already thinking about implementing anyway. So I think the lesson from COVID is actually, uh, particularly at times of crisis, unions and employers can work together, but it requires goodwill and trust in that uh, uh, relationship. But not only can they work together, they can work together to deliver uh, results. Yeah, I mean, you know, one has to hope that as part of the building back better process, as we kind of emerge from the worst of the the, the pandemic, those sort of values will 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 survive and indeed i mean i was surprised to read in the report that that actually the interests or the or the, or the, the work that's been done on the union side and the work that's been done on the employer side is very much in parallel in terms of who is it it's it's mckinsey are, are label themselves these days as supply risk management specialists and they were saying look we've so disaggregated the supply chain there's no way we can put it back together and and actually the points of vulnerability i suppose that people like mckinsey's would would identify would be exactly the same as the ones our members will tell us about. Very much so. One of the things that we draw attention to in the report is this new consulting industry, supply chain risk management, to give it its title, whereby consultants are giving employers and corporations uh, advice on risks to their supply chain and how they might conduct risk analysis and resilience tests and mitigation strategies to avoid disruption. Now, when they look at disruption, they're looking at a whole host of things, including cybercrime and an environmental disaster. But what they are saying is that at some point, there's going to be supply chain disruption that they need to be prepared for. And I guess the other thing for us to consider as trade unions is when those consultants are doing this risk analysis, where are they putting the strategic importance of workers in that uh, analysis? Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, it's, 
Yeah, one would hope they they would recognise the added value, uh, both in terms of reputational and in and in bottom bottom line, that well organised, well trained, well remunerated workers give to the, their business. But I'm damn sure it's not always the case. I mean, is, there were a couple of other tools that that were that were suggested as ways to try and organise across the length of a supply chain that, that, that caught my eye. The one that I've not come across before is, is over the threshold arrangements which I suppose is particularly the case where you've got groups of unionised workers moving from one one workplace to, a, to another, different employer, a different employer's workplace to another. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things that came out in the interviews that we were doing, whereby a uh, workplace can, the, the rep in that workplace, can represent and organise a worker who's actually coming in to that site. Now, uh, I'm not sure how widespread that is, but again, it's a demonstration of where both the uh, collective power of organisational strength, but also the intelligence and the wit and the resolve of our reps to think a bit more innovatively uh, can deliver some demonstrable results. If employers think that they can kind of divide and rule in that that very real sense, then, then that's a perfect a perfect sort of antidote. And I suppose part of that building a, a common level of understanding uh, and and that literally that solidarity function comes about from using digital technology, digital, digital communications technology in a, in a, a fleet sort, sort of way. And I understand that the survey that you did looked at the comfort that Unite Reps had in terms of using things like WhatsApp or Zoom or various other devices. What 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 were the findings in, in that area? Well, again, we, we took the opportunity to ask them during the pandemic, uh, our reps as well as everybody else has started to have to do things uh, a little bit differently. And that includes methods of communication and engagement. And whilst physical meetings and discussions, whatever they might look like as we go forward, will still have a place. Our uh, research found that due to COVID, 60% of the reps had resorted to using digital tools such as Zoom and WhatsApp to organise and communicate with members and indeed to deal with employers. And over two thirds of those reported a positive experience in using those tools. And that suggests that it could help sustain that supply chain coordination. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting and important factor as we as we look forward to to the future. Uh, in in terms of how this area of work plugs into international kind of global efforts to control or exert more control over in terms of conditions of people who work in supply chains, how how does what you're doing, what Unite the Union is doing, match up with what the ITUC is doing and the the changes that are being sought in the ILO Charter? It very much uh, runs alongside that. As I said earlier, there's a kind of domestic and international uh, dimension to this. Unite plays a very active role in the global union federations and uh, also through the TUC into the ICTU. And, you know, there's an important role in terms of not just global international solidarity through supply chains. And I know you had Owen Tudor on uh, towards the end of your last series who was uh, making this very point. But there's a role in terms of policing due diligence, the ability and indeed the compliance of employers to abide by global agreements such as the United Nations Global uh, Impact and 
ethical trading initiative projects. So we very much uh, see that running in parallel to that. That's also, I guess, highlights in addition to the organising dimension, the political and policy dimension, which is both international and domestic. At least everyone's heading in the same direction. I suppose the worst thing would be if people would, were, were, were looking at the same subject and going in entirely different directions. I mean, that's got to, that's got to make us more optimistic than anything else for, 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 for change. So what, what does come next in terms of the campaign, particularly, I mean, thinking of it within Unite rather than on the, the global stage? What, what are the next stages in, in work on this area? So we're going to develop those tools that we illustrated in the report, and we're going to do that in conjunction with our reps. We are going to continue to press on the policy and political agenda for collective bargaining to uh, really work uh, as successfully as we would like. It is helpful to have a conducive political environment that supports collective bargaining. And whilst we saw that being brought into train at the start of the pandemic, for example, whereby trade unions were very much involved in not only asking for, but helping to introduce and implement the furlough scheme. It remains to be seen the extent to which that sort of strategic collaboration will endure. On a more practical note, you mentioned a bit earlier the issue of uh, free ports, uh, mm. And that's very, very topical at the moment. We alluded to it in the report at the time, but at that stage, we didn't know the identity of some of the sites of the free ports. So again, Unite is very much involved in a piece of work which fits in with this collective bargaining strategy around free ports about trying to identify the information that we need to help build that solidarity amongst workers of different sectors that will be involved in these projects, but also to try and ensure that there are some key principles that are adhered to as this agenda gets taken forward. It was interesting to note, wasn't it, that when Rishi Sunak advised of where these sites were going to be, he kind of held this back as the last statement in his budget as a really significant piece of information uh, and detail as to how they see the economy going forward. And certainly what we've drawn attention to is that there is a risk in that agenda that it repeats and sees the same sort of free-for-all race to the bottom agenda that we alluded to at the start uh, of the report and indeed this interview that has so far been all too predominant around discussions and trade. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I, from my relative ignorance, uh, I have to say, uh, John, I was thinking, you know, free ports equals bad. Free ports equals a free-for-all, a race to the bottom, uh, an area denuded of, of regulation and, and, and control. But actually reading the report and, and some of the comments from reps in it, it seems that actually the location of the free port is almost as important as, as, as its existence itself. Because if it's located in an, geographically in an area that is already industrialized, already organized to a greater or lesser extent, it's a darn sight easier to make progress and protect terms and conditions than if it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but make no mistake, we've got some very, very serious concerns around the government's free ports agenda. We raised them at the time during the consultation last year and in the briefings that we've done subsequently. Those concerns are that there is a potential to, again, dilute workers' rights 
and also environmental standards and other standards and that actually the way that the government is going about it or how it's outlined that it's going to about it thus far presents some very real risks. That said, we recognise we've got a responsibility that our members work in many of these areas and many of these regions that are going to be affected and we need to ensure that it's actually them who don't suffer as a result of what the government decides to go ahead with. Gosh, a fascinating, a fascinating kind of portfolio of issues to, to deal with there. So many interconnections and I mean, I know your colleagues from the International Department and Policy Departments contributed to, to, to the report, but really, really interesting and, and so so important and relevant at the moment um before letting you go can i just ask you a, a kind of an entirely tangential question which is about the the research department that you're director of um i've heard it said uh, and listeners will also have heard it said I, i'm sure that the trade union sector is bizarre because it's worth about a billion quid by the time you throw in all the assets and yet it spends relatively a pittance on on research and, and, and innovation but actually you have a well populated research department which seems to buck that idea what's the what's the value of of a research department with what a, what 10 or so researchers in it to to a union like unite the union well i mean the value that we add relates to our very very strong connection to the industrial sections of our union uh, so we work very closely with those sectors the team that i have includes industrial research officers which provide that advice and research support to take forward those sectors industrial agendas but also we contribute to in conjunction with other central office departments and also tapping into the expertise of our representatives on the ground that policy debate uh, that I was talking about earlier and it's also my case in the team that in addition to that industrial research work that we do I've got a health and safety unit comprising of a couple of specialists, very, very important area, and they've really come into their own in the last year, I can tell you, uh, and uh, a pensions specialist, which, again, uh, is another really, really important area that has just grown and developed over the last decade or so. I'm tempted to say it's, it's the brains trust of the organisation, but that implies that there's no brains elsewhere in it, which would be quite wrong. <laughs> and I don't mean that. I don't mean that at all. John, it's been great great to chat with you. Uh, and the document really is, I'm not kidding, it really is a very, very important contribution to, to the debate. So so good luck with the organising work and, and approach that goes hand in hand with it. And, uh, and I look forward to reading and hearing about its success, hopefully in the not too distant future. Simon, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that discussion between John and myself. I thought there were some really interesting ideas and themes that we managed to tease out. You can get a copy of the Unite publication on organising along supply chains by going to unitetheunion.org forward slash media. And if you scroll down a little bit, you'll find the news release about the report and a link to be able to download a PDF version of it. And of course, there is a big community of interest between Unite's plan and the work of trade justice groups like corporate justice coalition and that community of interest i think really helps to reset the terms of the debate about fair trade sustainability and effective organizing in those areas and given the persistent polling showing the importance of these issues sustainability related issues to younger people and therefore young potential members there may be recruitment dividend as well (laughs) 
Now, a warm welcome back to Josiah Mortimer and his Radical Roundup, something of a one-stop shop for the union news you need to know. Thanks, Simon. Good to be back. First up, unions will pay tribute to working people who died during the pandemic on Workers' Memorial Day this Wednesday. A minute's silence will be held at midday alongside a vigil with bereaved families which will take place at London's Covid Memorial War. Events will be held across the country in memory of working people who've died during the pandemic. And unions are asking the public to observe the minute's silence in tribute to all the working people, including health, social care, food production and transport staff, who've lost their lives due to coronavirus. More than 11,000 people of working age have died since the start of the pandemic. Next up, private hire firm Addison Lee is the latest gig economy firm to have what unions have branded its bogus self-employment tactics exposed by the courts. The Court of Appeal ruled on Thursday that they will not be able to fight the decision by the Employment Tribunal that drivers are entitled to workers' rights. The decision was made in light of the recent Supreme Court case stating that Uber drivers, represented by law firm Lee Day, are entitled to receive the national minimum wage and holiday pay. GMB organiser Steve Garrelick said Addison Lee should stop trying to argue the impossible instead give their drivers the rights they're now entitled to. Next up, the government's new fire service advisor is a harbinger of doom for the service, the Fire Brigade Union said. Firefighters have pledged to fight tooth and nail for their service after the appointment of former National Fire Chiefs Council Chair Roy Wilshire as a government advisor on forthcoming reforms of fire and rescue services in England. A white paper is due later this year and is set to include major changes to the way fire and rescue services are run, including how pay is negotiated. In January, the NFCC, whilst under Wilshire's leadership, helped publish a report that called for restructuring or abolition of the body that negotiates firefighters' pay. The report recommended that it be replaced with a pay review body, preventing firefighters from having a union negotiate on their behalf. The FPU says the appointment of Wilshire, who oversaw cuts of 140 million to fire and rescue services in England between 2017 and 2021, represents a threat to the service. Over a thousand university and college union members at the University of Liverpool are expected to take industrial action from Monday 10th of May for up to five months in a row over job cuts. It will include members only working to contracted hours and boycotting all voluntary activities. Staff are prepared to take further action before the end of term, which could include strikes, as well as marking and assessment boycotts. The action comes after an overwhelming 90% of members who voted in the ballot earlier this month backed industrial action to fight the university's plans to slash up to 47 teaching and research jobs in the Faculty of Health and Life Sciences. University of Liverpool UCU branch president Anthony O'Hanlon said staff are furious that the university is proceeding with what he called the senseless attack on jobs. And finally, Voters are being reminded that thousands of public sector staff face a government pay freeze ahead of the local elections next week. In a campaign launched by Unison, care home staff, hospital porters and teaching assistants are among key workers, features in a series of hard-hitting films that show them carrying out vital jobs during the pandemic. Mercury Prize winner Speech DeBell has recorded the voiceovers for the black and white videos that urge people to vote for fair play in the May elections. The government has recommended a pay rise of just 1% for NHS workers, which Unison and other health unions have branded derisory. Unison, which is affiliated to Labour and gave the party 1.3 million in 2020, says voters should vote for change at the ballot box on May 6th. And that's it from this week's Radical Roundup on the Union Jews podcast. Catch the full Radical Roundup on leftfootforward.org on Wednesday. And back to you, Simon. Thanks. Many thanks indeed, Josiah. And just to follow up on Josiah's comments 
about Workers' Memorial Day, the TUC have a shed load of resources, lots of stuff to download. So if you want to do something to commemorate Workers' Memorial Day on Wednesday and need resources to help you, just uh, visit tuc.org.uk forward slash WMD and you'll find everything you could possibly need. And just to push the point, let's not forget, as the words of the TUC have it, every year more people are killed at work than in wars. Most don't die of mystery ailments or in tragic accidents. They die because an employer decided their safety just wasn't that important a priority. Uh, a couple of other points to supplement Josiah's report. Christina Colclough, our dear friend, tweets that, in her view, it's time for a public-facing rebrand for unions after US surveys showed that support for workers organising was up to 20 20 percentage points higher if the words Labour Union were not mentioned. The situation is, of course, slightly different on this side of the pond, as union membership in the US is very, very closely tied up with a particular model of collective bargaining, unlike here, where people can and do join unions for a whole variety of reasons. But even so, that, that stat really does make you think. And news breaking of a fresh attempt for a union to take as much control as it can, to add as much value as it can, when it comes to messaging and member comms. This comes from the CWU, who have announced that an app is in the advanced stages of planning. According to the branch briefing that's come out from the union, the first phase of this will see all of the union's communications channels consolidated into one place video, podcasts, written articles, and so on, all within the app, as well as having the ability to directly engage members by polling them on big issues. Crucially, says the news release, the union will also have the ability to send notifications to all members via the app, and that would be an excellent tool for advertising major events or industrial action ballots. CWU events will be detailed on the app via software, which will enable users to link that information directly with smartphone calendars, and in addition to CWU content, the union says it will also have a publicly facing element of the app called the affiliate section. Now, this will enable the union to promote disputes which are taking place across the movement, show solidarity with all workers and promote key campaigns such as a new deal for workers. And in a further phase, the app has also been specifically designed to support and develop recruitment and organising strategies and hopefully build a platform to grow the union. You can, of course, already track disputes through the strike map app which we've covered on previous episodes of this podcast but this is exciting stuff nevertheless really exciting stuff and i look forward to seeing how it develops now if your union is doing something different or new at national regional or branch level don't keep it to yourself drop us a line at unionjews it makes you think.com and it may just end up as part of our news roundup which is a great way to spread the word about union innovation inventiveness and success. Well, I just have time left to give a customary shout out to our friends in the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a portal of over 70 union related podcasts with literally something for everyone. You can access all that at labourradionetwork.org. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard on this episode, that it's perhaps made you think. Don't forget that there's a companion blog with all the links, signposting and background you need over on the makesyouthink.com website. We'd certainly love to hear your views and get your feedback, what you liked, what perhaps didn't land so well, what you'd like to see more of. You can contact the show by email at unionjews at makesyouthink.com or tweet us at jewsunion. If you could rate us and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform, that would be very much appreciated. Thank you.
So a big thank you to John Earls, to Josiah and Mel, and above all to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time with us. We'll be back with our next episode in a couple of weeks. So whatever you're doing, do stay safe and I'll see you next time on Union Juice. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.